Good morning, folks who are joining. Oh, it's only morning probably for me. <laughs> I've been mountain time zone. I realize that others are joining from other time zones. Hello, humans on Earth in a variety of time zones. <laughs> Welcome to the Vine Down. Folks are just joining. We're going to get started in just a moment. As we get started, uh, you may notice that some of us are in some version of Barbie pink, and I have a question for the panelists. Which Barbie would you be? I've not seen the Barbie movie, and I'm just curious for our panelists. Jason, which Barbie would you be, do you think? I had a feeling you were going to pick me first because my shirt is so loud, so I will make sure to the talk most over my shirt. But definitely, if I had to choose a Barbie... I am Malibu Beach Barbie. Put me on the beach. That is my happy place. So I'm going with Malibu Beach Barbie. Malibu Barbie was always the prettiest. Um, Vinay, what Barbie would you be? Well, A, I haven't seen the movie, so no, I me don't either. appreciate this spoilers. Is, yeah, you could be lawyer Barbie, judge Barbie, journalist Barbie, mermaid Barbie. Dipl- you'd be diplomat Barbie. Maybe you'd be good at that. Uh, that's giving far too much credit to my uh, patients or, or lack thereof. Um, probably Dr. Barbie. That, w- that would make my mom oh, happy, yeah. even though I didn't become a doctor in real life. So there you go. Um, I like Dr. Barbie for you. I can see that. I 100% would be weird Barbie, like I, despite my like June Cleaver, like white woman thing that's going on right now on purpose. I would absolutely be weird Barbie. Um, and that would make my mother very happy. Jose, what about you? Um, my mother would also be ecstatic if I was Dr. Barbie, but growing up in Southern California with my last name, I have to be Malibu Barbie because that's what they call my sister for a decade. That's Shout awesome. out to my sister. What's up, sis? Um, I actually think that's a really interesting perspective on like, I am not the children of immigrants. I am like the children of affluent white people who went to college. And I got the like, whatever you want to be, honey. And you're like, doctor, they wanted me to be a doctor. I like that. All right, folks, you're here for the weekly wind down, a weekly show where we get super weird, obviously, and candid about the myriad of topics that are happening in higher education. Um, We really want to be here to be humans talking about all of these topics. Um, We're today going to talk about sort of the corner and intersection of affirmative action and summer melt, sort of why those things matter together. They're sort of seem like potentially far apart topics, uh, but as we've dived into it, they are getting closer and closer in our minds. Um, I'd love to properly introduce the group now that you know what Barbies they would be. Um, Hi, I'm Emily Smith. I had a partner success at College Vine. Over the last 20 years, I've worked for four ed tech companies and I estimate about 500 admissions offices from everything from student search, enrollment consulting, CRM, all of the things. I'm joined by Malibu Barbie number one, Jason McNair-Falk, who um, heads up some of our client success efforts. He's kind of a three-way expert in that he spent time on the high school side, led enrollment at three colleges, um, and now he's joined us on the dark side. Um, Jose Malabo, Malibu Barbie number two, um, has brought some sort of corporate-style marketing as the chief enrollment, enrollment and marketing officer at SCAD, Morehouse, and then one other um, predominantly black and brown vocational institution as an expert from the other side, heads up our marketing efforts here at College Vine. And then finally, Dr. Barbie uh, Vinay Lascaro, who is a College Vine co-founder and heads up our data and strategic practices. So these are our experts today having a really candid conversation. Quick reminder, folks, on housekeeping. 
this always happens in our webinar. People, we were like, we'd love questions. This is a conversation. This is a live show. This is actually happening um, on Thursday as you're watching it. And we get a lot of questions at the end and we run out of time to answer them. So please out there in the audience, please use the Q&A feature to, um, to ask us questions. Don't wait, get them in soon now um, so that we can make sure that we cover them. So I'd love to share, first of all, who we are. I realize some of the audience may not know who we are at College Vine. Um, I think the thing to think about is that we are like LinkedIn for high school students. I think that's a really good way of thinking about College Vine. Um, we've got 2 million students on the platform who have joined us explicitly to get recruited by colleges. They create full professional profiles with about 75 data points, um, and they are here represented to get connected to the colleges that they either already care about or should care about. Um, so they understand that they're part of this explicit recruitment activity that's instead of like this random thing that happens to them. The way CollegeVine works for colleges is that colleges join the platform, send lots, send lots of connection requests to students. The students either accept the connection requests or dismiss them. If they accept them, you get a super high signal inquiry into your CRM and you have established this like candid human first relationship with the student where they know that you are interested in recruiting them. They are interested in getting recruited by you. So that whole kickoff of being both human and explicit really kicks off the right relationship with a student and you're down the road into, um, into converting that student into an enrolled student. So that's who we are at College Vine. That's why we care about this topic. Um, and we care about topics, including affirmative action things um, and some are melt things. So I'll quit my screen so you can see our big shiny faces, big face moment. And I'd love to talk about kind of uh, like, it's July, it's hot. Classes are usually being finalized sort of doing this dance on the enrollment side of like starting the efforts for next year, but really looking at the class coming in um, with crossed fingers and toes. And I'm curious, um, Jose, from your perspective, like why you think this topic of MELT is more important now than in years past, and maybe why it's going to become even more uh, important in, in future cycles um, without affirmative action? Yeah, so it's a great starter question. I think for me, it's seeing what COVID did over the last two years. And then that, that moment is sort of kind of waning in terms of how it affects people and how they view college. I think we came out of that and people started questioning the value of college in general. And in this moment in late July, the stresses on melt or people choosing not to go to a school are going to be closer to those types of economic things than perhaps earlier in the cycle. Like in June, I might melt because I want to go to a different school that got a different package from so I think that is piece of what I'm, I would be going through in terms of if I'd gone back into the institution side. And then going forward, I think the demographic cliff, which we talk about all the time, you talk about mm -hmm. all the time, and the, the search cliff, that's going to great gain traction. And then this little thing that SCOTUS dropped on us a month ago, that is going to be, I think, the, uh, the, the triple threat on why MELT is going to get more focus or should get more focus by people like us and in the other side of the screen. Yeah, I, I guess like what what do you think that could mean for uh, for campuses like Jason, you've you're a black guy who's worked at a predominantly white institution. <laughs> what do you think like what do you think that change might look like for a predominantly white institution looking at recruiting a diverse class of students? Like what was that conversation like at the time you were leading enrollment at that institution? And what, what do you think might change? Uh, another great question, and thank you for flagging for everyone to call that I am Black. Yes, 
I am Black for those who did not see. Um, and it's such a great question. I think a lot of what Jose said is the impact now, but I think regardless of what type of institution that you have worked at in the past or work at now, summer melt is something that affects all institutions, selective, highly, uh, not selective, whatever the case may be, summer melt is a real thing. And I think what I noticed at the predominantly white institution that I worked at being uh, African-American and being deemed there is that students of colors really flock to folks who look like them. And so when I was holding events, when I was um, on the road talking about why the students should choose uh, my particular institution, I was so excited, but also, I guess, surprised at some of the conversations I had with families that, you know, I had Black families who would come specifically to me and ask, as a Black person, is my child safe at your institution? Mm. And I think my responses had a direct impact on if summer melt would go up or if summer melt would go down. At a predominantly white institution, I always saw summer melt was a, a real thing. We stayed anywhere from seven to 10% at the predominantly white institutions that I worked at. But it was even higher for students of color because I think there's a lot of other factors that come into play. But the, the piece of having an inclusive community that's welcoming, seeing people around campus who are staff members, professors, people that they will be engaging with every day who look like them was really, really important. So there's definitely a intersectionality between being a person of color and all of these other things that you are hoping that your institution will have to make you feel included. The key word is included. Diversity is, is wasn't a, a real high point for a lot of students that I work with. They were more concerned about, will I be welcomed on your campus? I have a, I have a very human follow-up question to that. And Vinay, I would like to then kick it to you to talk about how like the data and preferences uh, that, of the students that we see on our platform potentially supports what Jason says. Um, so get your numbers ready, math Barbie. But Jason, like human question that we did not prep for that I'd like to ask you. In that moment where you were confronted with a family who was asking you a question about, will my kid be safe here? Um, you had to play two sides of things. You had to play the side of being like a fellow Black person answering that question for a Black family. And you were the company man trying to get students in the door and trying to get uh, like that student to continue to on with their deposit and actually arrive on move-in day. What was the balance like for like what what was the balance like for you in that moment to balance those two things of like human you and company man you? Yeah. Um, you know what? I am a human first. And so I always try to respond to every question as a human. I think what worked well is just being super transparent and authentic with my answers. Uh, at all the institutions I worked at, we had a a, a challenge of being diverse. There was a challenge of being inclusive. And I always wanted to share those challenges. Mm -hmm. And I remember having a conversation with a mom who was actually sending two Black male twins um, to the institution. And she asked point blank, will my boys be safe here as a Black, not just Black, but Black male here on campus? Mm -hmm. And I responded very candidly and says, like a lot of predominantly white institutions, they will be in the minority here. Are there challenges? 
are there opportunities for growth? Yes, but we are actively working on trying to build such an inclusive community, but enrolling your boys here is a start to us becoming even more inclusive. And your boys are actually laying a foundation and a roadmap for other students who look like them who will come to us in the future. Um, I love that perspective of being human first. Um, unfortunately, that answer comes with like, and more work for you, like more work for you to be that person in that community. Um, but thanks for letting me ask an unscripted question. Curious about that. Um, well, I think it's actually really interesting that you, Jason brought up the notion of, you know, your your kids, your your boys are going to be the start of what we hope is like a growing trend, right? Where we're trying to bring more Black students to, to campus. We're trying to create more of that community. Because I think the directionality of that, if, if sort of the early responses to the Supreme Court ruling are any indication, is that you're going to see things start to go in the other direction than a lot of PWIs. And so um, I think that that's a really interesting question as you think about those families that are on the edge um, for, for, uh, and, and potentially going to melt, particularly from some of those um, populations that are most impacted by the decision. I wonder how many of them are going to look at that PWI differently if they have in the back of their head, this is going to be a very different place by the time my, my kids are in their third or fourth year just with who the student mix is, potentially what the faculty mix looks like, potentially, especially in, in certain states, um, with what the political climate looks like, not just for their education itself, but potentially downstream for their job prospects. So Vinay, can you back us into that claim a little bit more? Because like you sort of started in the middle, which is to say like over time, white institutions are gonna get more white. Like that's sort of a, a summary of what you just shared. And like, and what families and students might make meaning of that. Can you back us into that a little bit more, like, to get us to that starting point? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea that this matters to um, Black and Latino and, and Native students is pretty sort of resoundly backed up by the underlying data. So one of the things that we do at College Vine, when, when a student comes in and creates a profile, they give us an inventory of the things that matter most to them in their college search. And there's 27 of what we call preference factors. And what you see pretty consistently across both of those student populations, both the Black and, and Latino populations, is that inclusion, to Jason's point, is you know right at the top. It's number one for Black students. It's number three for um, Hispanic students. Diversity, like just like the numerical metric or, you know, the ability to look around the college campus and it, have it feel like the brochure, quote unquote, um, is more middle of the pack. It's something that, you know, it, it, it's a nice to have, but it isn't really core to their college decision. And that's what we've pretty consistently seen um, on the student side. On the institutional side, I think, you know, obviously we got to see where how the data plays out and how, how the, the numbers play out over the next two years. But the combination of um, admissions side impacts, particularly at sort of um, private schools, smaller colleges, and colleges with lower acceptance rates, and arguably the sort of um, the chilling effect on applications mm -hmm. um, in terms of fewer you know, students of color even applying to some of these institutions be out of, in some cases, a misguided fear, like, hey, I'm not going to get in anyway. If you combine those two things, I think it's it's a reasonable prediction to make, and I would feel comfortable putting this out there as a hypothesis that you're going to see fewer students of color on these campuses across the next three to four years than you did in, in previous years. Um, 
And that's before you account for folks maybe even transferring out, depending on, on how they're feeling. So take those two sides, right? Students really care about that sense of community, that sense of belonging, that sense of inclusion. Um, there's literally gonna be like smaller numbers to generate that sense of community and, and, and belonging and inclusion. Um, it's not hard to see that like that conversation goes very differently for the 2024 version of Jason, or I guess Malibu Barbie, um, sitting in an enrollment officer's chair and having a conversation with a family that's on the precipice of melting. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's the, the under. Yeah, I can see I can see how it stacks in that way, um, and really creates like a multifaceted storm for that. Um, Jose, I'm curious from your perspective, because again, like I, I pitched you as in the beginning, like this is a person who has brought some sort of like corporate level marketing tactics into an admissions and Marcom office at an institute at a couple of different institutions. And I'm curious how you guided your team to use technology, data analytics, vendor partnerships to like identify at-risk students who would be acceptable to susceptible to summer melt and like use data and tools to make good decisions about how you should behave uh, because of what you were seeing in the technology. I'm curious how yeah. um, how you might have seen that. So uh, you can address me as Malibu Barbie too, if you want. Oh, okay. I know it's just as Got easy. It. We can stay in the nomenclature. Yes. And for the record, Jason's black and I'm brown. So that's cool too. Uh, but so, yeah, I think that's a really good conversation because in the bad days where I didn't have data, we were going based on opinions, right? Like, hey, so-and-so thinks that we've done mm, this feelings. and it's effective. Like, oh, I feel like the alumni community is going to drive enrollment mm -hmm. and yield all the way through the funnel. Ask so-and-so, they're a patriarch or matriarch. They've been here forever. They know how it works. And then you dig into the funnel data and you're like, counterintuitive to all that you just said, right? And that was my first couple of years where I was like, not only did I have to learn what institutional effectiveness that means, mm -hmm. um, but like the data they own. And so we started using things like NPS, modified NPSs, to see what our current student population's um, promoter scores were over time. And in one institution, it actually was negative over time, which is totally counter to most of every other schools that the longer you're in a community, right, the more close you get to it and odds are you're going to stick around. So using those types of things and then extrapolating that into, you know, focus groups of those who melted and asking them individually why and what choices and specifically what offers they took instead really helped elucidate not just the qual on that, but the quantitative of how many proportionately melted at a certain time for what reason and against what offers. And that totally informed not just enrollment and marketing, but walking it down the hall to financial aid and how we package students. That was usually the epiphany. It was like not just the package, but when we hit them with the package mm -hmm. was the biggest differentiator how difficult or not difficult my July, August was having to report to the board with a number that felt good or soft, right? And so those are things we did. And then and when it got better, it was when I got into the deep analytics that I got through partners that are now really expensive and feel a little outdated. But five years ago, I was like, oh, this is all we got, right? We, we got this big ass CSV file and I got to pour through it for a month, right? To get Intel out. Those days are over. You can thank our co-founders. So at some that. places, they're yeah. they're over. Yeah. It's, it's still happening at right. a lot of institutions. So if you're sitting at institutions where that is still happening, or you have like some manila folders on your desk or in your car, like please know that that's still happening. Jose has evolved, but I try to. I'm so it. triggered. I'm so triggered by the last like 60 seconds. I'm like those folders, that CSV file. 
now I'm going to go cry off camera. I know. I, I, I need to go jump in a pool because, yeah, but so that. Is this where I ask what a manila folder is? Oh my gosh. Stop the webinar. You know what a manila folder is, right? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just pulling your legs. Okay. Uh, okay. Good. I will okay. get one out of I, my desk. If you don't, I will I show it to you. I have to recover now. Uh, Okay, so Jose, you're talking about systems and processes replacing feelings and sort of intuition and like letting you letting us get to this place where we can be data led. And yet there are times and places because of the like pouring over the big CSV file, you still might get lost in the weeds of some of that data and some of that analysis. Um, I think it's really interesting that you're talking about like getting down to like, it's not just the aid package itself, but like when it's presented and how, how it's presented. Um, another vendor in the last couple of weeks published some research about like that it wasn't the award amount that mattered as much as the packaging. Um, and we can get to those finer those finer points now, I think, um, to, to replace feelings with sort of being informed. Do you want to return to one thing that you said at the top of your answer, which was you started by measuring NPS. And I, I want to slow that down for the audience. That's something we talk about on the corporate side. I want to explain what that acronym is, because if you're sitting there and like, you don't know what that is, it's, it's normal to not know what that is. That's a net promoter score that measures like loyalty, um, and, uh, of customers of a company. And it is a simple question, which is asked, like, would you recommend this school or this company or this product to a friend? That's it. Would you recommend this to a friend? Um, and it's a one to 10 scale nine and 10, you're seen as actively promoter seven and eight, you are neutral and anything below six is a detractor. So that's a very strict score. Like Think about the things you use in your daily life. You might give many of them an eight. That's neutral on that score. So for you to get to that finer point of like who actually is a promoter of our brand, of this relationship with us, sort of the loyalty of the students and families you're dealing with, um, I think is some really interesting data to operationalize. Yeah. I Emily, think, can I add? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead Jason. Go ahead. Sure, sure. I will go first as I am. Malu, boo. Barbie, number one. I just want to have that one next to me. I'm just going to hold my finger here. I'm one. Um, you said some very important information about using the data. And I, I will take it a step further and say, once you have all that data, how do you operationalize that data and make it human? And I think this is where a lot of schools have an opportunity is to say, not just use the data to inform business practices, things like that, but how do you get your student workers? How do you get current students to really build those personal connections with students that are coming into your university uh, in the fall? Summer melt, they're, they're it's gonna happen, but you have to definitely have a human perspective to that. And using student workers is a great opportunity to take all the information we found that, you know, whatever it says from that big CSV file, take that, train student workers, get them on the phone, get them texting students, get them emailing students. And that's how students, I think, begin to feel included and welcoming into your community, even before they set foot on your campus in the fall. Yeah. Can I add to that? Can I add to that? Please, Malibu please. too. Okay. So one of the things, and, and I was, and I'll explicitly say, I was head of marketing admissions at Jason's alma mater, Morehouse College, right? Uh, single gender men's HBCU. A lot of lessons there, although they don't look obvious, is what he just talked about, the sense of community. The rites and rituals of an HBCU, and I went to two PWIs, are like nothing you've ever seen. That sense of community helped fight our melt, which typically in an HBCU space is mm. double digits. I'm not talking low double digits. I'm talking high double digits across the sector. We moved. I saw how those rites and rituals built a sense of community. 
and we moved those up in the admission cycle. So we would start treating students as students at admitted students day. The conversation started there and we treated them as part of the community. Like you're in it already. We, the vernacular changed at admitted students day. We assumed they were coming and it's amazing how that fosters community. And I think bigger schools perhaps never had to do that, that I've adopted that in almost everything I think about now of like when you have a sense of community and loyalty and belonging, which Benet talked about, it's hard to back out of that. I'm just going to say it's really hard to pull out of that. I think there's been also a, a structural shift in how much community students feel or how, how, how much of a connection students feel to your institution before they are admitted and before they enroll, right? You go back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even 15 years ago, 10 years ago, right? More often than not, than not, a student that applied to you had visited. A student that applied to you had had some sort of in-person touch point with an admissions officer at a college fair or a high school visit, right? And that, that obviously had had its drawbacks. There's challenges to access and, and that, that are caused by a system that relies on in-person presence and there's challenges to equal access for particularly lower income families. But the flip side of that is that they would come in with a... Um, a greater degree of of um, affinity, but also of connection to your institution. And now I think that the way that the admissions process has gotten less friction filled, like that's valuable and that, that that has a lot of good aspects to it, but it also means that the individual student and the individual family feels a lot more atomized, right? They don't they don't really feel like they have a connection to your institution. Oftentimes they view your institution as a means to an end. And so you have to work doubly as hard to um, get that across. And I would say even, even just across my like 10 years of counseling students and working with students in this space, I have seen a pretty marked shift in how they talk about college and how they think about their college journey. It has become much more practical. It has become much more um, a means to an end. And there's less of that emotional draw at the, at the initial stages. And so that's something that you don't have to necessarily take sitting down. Like you, you can do things that change that mm -hmm. feeling and that perception, but it is hard. You, you know, the current sort of practices run over and over again, don't get you there. From the well, we've, we've trained this generation to be really savvy consumers, right? Like through all of their interactions with um, digital and data and devices, we have trained these students to be way savvier and way more in control of this journey where like choosing to not go to college is becoming a more predominant reason to melt, right? Like that, okay, I've done the math here and I could go get a certificate and go get a coding job and earn a lot of money right out of high school, right? Like it's not, it's not as much of a foregone conclusion that students will, will attend higher education, which starts to stack up with things like the demographic cliff, where we start to like enmesh those things together where it's like a population drop off and sort of difference in savviness and what the students would expect or consume. Um, one of the things, Jose, I think about like, uh, one of the things I think we do in this webinar sometimes when we talk about like what enrollment can do is we sometimes talk about like things that seem um, obvious to us in corporate jobs that schools don't think about doing. And what you just described of a, of a shift in language, I'm gonna like pull the Wizard of Oz curtain back for the audience. You talked about an like an intentional shift of language to establish belonging and community at the moment of like basically indication of strong interest, which is what I would consider a deposit, like at its least candid. 
We call that on the corporate side, the presumptive close, right? If you're talking to somebody you're trying to sell something to, and you get to a place where you're like, oh, they're into it. They're probably going to buy it. You shift your language, demeanor, behaviors around like, okay, you're in, we're doing this. I'm excited. We're going to get you going. Like that is a great way to build community. And I'm wondering um, for particularly for large schools with the staffing crisis layered over it, like what's to do, like how to, how to operationalize that across and scale that up over like a limited staff and huge numbers. So that's a long answer, but I'll get, I'll synopsize it. Right. I think the first thing is in the now absolutely makes sense and try to take as much record of all those that are melting, that are stressing them to melt now to learn for the future because it's coming next year's coming. But in terms of things that we've learned, or I learned in the corporate side, let's say you have 10 admissions people. Odds are that those people are almost entirely top in the middle of the funnel. What I've done in the last two jobs I had was I took two of those people and I moved them down funnel. 100% of their jobs, very corporate, customer care, family care. We had rules. It was basically you, anybody who deposits or is is strong signal, 100% 24-hour turnaround on their questions from anybody in the family. Oh, and like a service people, level agreement of like the uh, expectation yeah. for response right. time. Oh, okay. It was yep. internal. So admissions people on my team became customer and family care people. You, literally, they we changed their jobs. And so you go from a top of the funnel, 7,000 people, 10 people you know, taking care of that. At the bottom, you're like 800. So right. I, I could parse out two people and that's their entire job is to care for that family. And when you get to the discussion of black over brown, that equity level of service is even more exacerbated, right? Yes. We have more stressors than typical students in the mainstream white communities where, God, you know, I probably was working a job. And so I have 10 minutes to talk to my counselor after my job. And that's real. And so we shifted org charts. We shifted budgets. I had to give raises to people. It, was, it wasn't just a, hey, it's a marketing thing, change the website. It was a systemic discussion. And all data-driven, like I had to bring this to the board and to my president and be like, this, we're not aligned right. You know, our customer needs more service at the end with his or her family. And to me, I'm doing that right now if I get a job in that space. And it's like, that's my first thing is how do I care for the families at the bottom? Yeah, it's how I resource client success, right? Like we, yeah. we think about like what the customer set needs, what like a high level of touch, a low level of touch, what their journey looks like. And we actually do resource planning around, like if I know I'm going to, if the sales team is going to sell to 50 schools who are not operationally savvy and need a lot of care and feeding, like we will scale up the client success organization to handle that differently. And you're saying the same thing. Like we actually have to um, uh, differently compensate and over, overly compensate for people who have more an additional challenge and need more an additional help to let things be equitable, not equal. Um I think that's really well said. And I don't mean to be making this all about like what we can learn for corporation, you know, what we can learn from on the admission side about corporate, uh, just interesting corollary. Um, before we get to um, to a last question, I do want to invite the audience, if you do have questions or if there are topics that you want us to discuss, now's the time. We're nearing 15 minutes till the close of the webinar. So I would encourage you again to use the Q&A um, if you want to ask us questions or getting us talking about a particular topic. Um, we've covered most questions already, uh, but I want to make sure you have a chance to get your last questions in. Um, Jason, travel with me, Malibu Barbie number uno, travel with me to the future. If you're an enrollment leader next summer, what are you doing and what are you changing in terms of behaviors, given that we have just admitted and recruited the first class without affirmative action 
since in many decades? Like what behaviors do you think need to be brought in next summer? Um, first, I'm going to hire Jose as a consultant because he has really great ideas. Um, just the blanket idea of bringing a lot of what corporate America does over to Harriet. It, it seems like a no brainer, but there's so many Harriet institutions that do not use technology, don't use the best practice that we learned from Chipotle. I love Chipotle. I eat Chipotle all the time. They used to be very targeted communications based on what I order and the coupons and things that keep me coming back. How do we layer that in to the conversations that we are having with prospective students and families? But seriously, I think transparency. I think institutions have to get real about what diversity is, what inclusive, what being inclusive is, and really do a great job of building some calm plans that really allow families and, and students to really experience what their institutional stance is. And I think, again, uh, if you tuned into the last fight mm -hmm. on last week, I will say again, institutions that don't do this well, will see a large drop in students of color because Families are getting smarter. Students are getting smarter about the institutions that they want to spend their time at. Some institutions are $30,000, $50,000 a year. That is a big bite to, to take. And families are becoming even more strategic about what institutions really fit, not only academically, but also socially, and will be able to take their um, child to the next level. So I think there's a lot of conversations to have with this incoming class. Uh, this incoming class has gone through COVID. They have gone through the Supreme Court decision now. They have really overcome some huge challenges. So I think that there is a lot to learn and asking them, how can we help find other students like you? How can we tailor this communication to get additional students like you? It's gonna be very beneficial. Student groups are great. But more importantly, you have to have a whole campus environment around this. This should be a total all-in campus initiative that we have to make sure that we're providing an environment for all of our students, students of color, white students, Asian students, whatever the students are. As a campus, are we supporting all of our students? A lot of the times, Jose, you and I have talked a lot about this off camera about the pressure of deans of enrollment, VPs of enrollment to like, the, the, the if the university stays open or closes because if you enroll the right classes. I've lost so much sleep about this. When somebody started asking me how many, I freak out, even if they're asking me like, how many reps did I burn at the gym? Or how many smoothies did I drink? How many goals, how many students will you enroll in the fall? I'm automatically triggered. How many here. interceptions will Dustin Fields throw this year? How many reps at the gym? I'm gonna guess over 10. Yes, I'm going to, you know, can we just remove Vinay from this webinar right now? Because he's chose violence this morning. But but really ensuring that enrollment leaders have the support of the entire university as they're trying to really build a marketing brand that's attracting the students that you truly want to um, attract. And I say that last piece to say students will understand if they get brochures if they get communications from you they don't see students that look like them they don't hear um, stories from students who look like them they're going to instantly know that they may not be welcome into your campus community so think hard and long about those con plans to those prospective students and that starts now yeah jose anything to add to that about what you would have have us do next summer um yeah, I, I would just be a little specific, particularly because I've been in such uh, 
I won't call them niche, but Art and Design University addresses a very small segment of the market, HBCUs as well, right? Mathematically, that is. Yeah. Um, I think enlisting specifically alumni and ambassador groups to embrace the journey is part of what I was talking about, the, the vernacular. When you can get a, you're from Philadelphia and you've applied to X university or school, put them in touch with the alumni group. It sounds so ridiculously simple, but we did it really, really well. Hats off to the Morehouse alumni community. They would do send-off parties. I've never seen it like this in my life. Anywhere else, they would do send-off parties that would help yield better classes. Not because of me, but we went from double-digit um, you know, melt to less than 1% over the last three years at Morehouse College. And a lot of this had to do with that community building. So to me, it's more of the same. And I would just say, take that to heart, but to, to get that executed, you have to start working on that now. Like yeah. that's not easy. Do you right. To with... line up the people, the places, the, the yeah. families who, who can participate in that. I, I walked into that infrastructure. It was just, you know, oriented towards our new admissions cycle and the data and then picking the markets because we didn't have good Intel in my opinion um, on where that was happening. So, but I had the luxury of having that infrastructure in place, but that's a great learning lesson that I think is, perhaps not visible to everybody is how powerful mm -hmm. that can be towards addressing these big Herculean things that are happening in higher ed. Well, and for, for traditional age students, that's a, that's a huge developmental leap for a, a, I guess, a teenager who you are essentially making the case for, like, here's how good and effective it can feel to be part of something bigger than yourself. Like developmentally, that is a big leap. Um, so to have events, signage communication that signal those things, I think is a powerful move. Um, I have one very specific question for Vinay. Um, we talk in the last, I think we've done affirmative action topics for like the last five weeks here on the Vine Down. Um, we talk a lot about black and brown students. We haven't talked about Native American students um, and indigenous students. Um, and I'm curious if we can talk a little bit about what do you think melt prevention looks like for that very specific population? I'm asking because um, we've got um, a public institution in the audience who I know recruits and deals with a lot of the Native American population. And Vinay, I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about what that data suggests as a, as a bit of a final question. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting about the, the Native population is that even though they have some of the same structural disadvantages as large swaths of the, the Black community and the Latino community, they do tend to think about like college and their journey and um, that decision a, a little bit differently, right? Um, they're they're not as they don't view themselves as as centralized in the affirmative action debate because it so often centers on those other two populations. Um, so I think in a, in an interesting way, you pr probably see less of an impact for those populations than you do for 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 Black and Hispanic students in part because also I think those native populations for most institutions are small enough that they really don't affect the kinds of stats that are going to get you into legal trouble, right? Um, so I, I do think that the it's directionally very similar, but the challenging thing is that like the literal math of how many native students there are in the country means that it is hard for every institution to achieve that community in a direct sense. Right. Like, you know, how are you going to get to a point where you've got 10 percent native students on campus? There are some institutions that, that do it, obviously, in particular geographies. But for the most part, most institutions can't get there. 
Mm-hmm. You have to think less linearly about what it means to build a community for those students. And you sometimes have to think beyond the campus community, right? Because there's only so many students you can bring in. There's only so many professors you can bring in. But there are broader Native communities in the, in your region and in the country that you can lean on to, to support that. Got it. Yeah, I think that's a it's an important audience because we're, we yeah, you're right. Like by the numbers, the the out effects for Black and Hispanic families and populations is definitely getting a lot of news, a lot of energy um, and a lot of discussion, even by us. So um, thanks for taking that step to talk about um, a, a different population there. Um, I think we've covered most of our questions from the group, from the audience. Um, so I'll close with just a, a final story of like things that have happened that are operationally weird at colleges. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I told you about um, the, the nun who carried up her typewriter up several sets of stairs so that she could retype uh, online application submissions into those manila folders um, during a snowstorm in northern Minnesota. That was sort of where we have been with online applications. Um, just in the last year, I had a conversation with an institution who had a dedicated computer that ran at someone's house. It ran every weekend, every Friday. The CRM, um, the CRM admin would uh, push a button on this laptop, and the report had to run in Microsoft Access for 48 hours. That's how long it took, so that the report could go, like the weekly report, could go and get on everyone's desk on Monday morning. Um, <laughs> It's like, I'm out of here. Um, And I tell that because it's funny, but it's also true that there is like, that is still happening. And when we are asking you to do these behaviors that are informed by data and complex and clean operations, I also just want to uh, validate and acknowledge a big variety of uh, operational maturity. Um, And if you feel daunted by adding in some of these behaviors informed by some of this data, and I'm essentially asking you like, be good, candid humans across a huge scale with a lot of data, like that's hard. And I don't mean to oversimplify that um, for the group. So um, while those of you out there in higher ed land choke on um, a computer that runs a report for 48 hours, um, hopefully I don't wish that on any of you. I'm getting the vibe of there was a new story in early April of 2020, like right after the pandemic first hit about how New Jersey's unemployment insurance system wasn't working properly because they still ran on this like 45 year old program language, <laughs> like on old mainframes, COBOL. Um, so like, that's the vibe I'm getting from, from your. Yes. Your yeah. Right. Like we're, we're relying thoughts. on more of those um, broken systems than I think we think we are. Great. Well, that's it for the Vine Down folks. I really appreciate the panelists and your good opinions and your good thoughtfulness here, your candor as always in your humanness, Malibu one, Malibu, Malibu two and Dr. Barbie. This is Weird Barbie signing off. We'll see you next week on The Vine Down. Thanks so much for coming. Take care.